between cord cutting's acceleration and big tech bidding up rights to stream sports, ESPN is getting squeezed from all sides. What should Bob Iger do about ESPN's future? Listen on to find out more. Welcome to this week's edition of Inside the Stream. This is Will Richmond from Video News. And that was Colin Dixon from End Screen Media at the top. Hey, Colin, how's everything going? It's going great, Will. I'm looking forward to the big game this weekend with the Niners against Philadelphia. They sure look tough, but, you know, the surprise quarterback success for the 49ers with Purdy, well, who knows what could happen. So <laughs> I'm looking forward Mr. to it. Mr. Irrelevant, as they call him, right? Exactly, exactly. Last man drafted. Last man drafted. But he's sure proving out to be a great uh, a great thing. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Well, I'm noting for the record, Colin, that I don't think you've mentioned the Niners once this entire last three months of the NFL season. I thought you had completely sworn them off, but now you have a note of fair weather, fair weather fan excitement in your voice. <laughs> That's exactly right. No, no, no. I'm, yeah, I'm still a soccer Guilty fan. Still a, still a soccer fan first and still still immersed in the Premier League. And uh, yes, I'm still that first. But, you know, uh, it's good to see the Niners doing well. Guilty as charged, my yep. friend. Yeah. Okay, well, should we get started? Yeah, let's, let's absolutely do that. And uh, we're going we're gonna to do our couple of news stories that popped for us this week mine happened today and that's the results comcast announced its results and as part of those results it told us how it was doing with peacock and this is sort of a good news bad news thing will peacock has now got over 20 million subscribers a big 5 million increase from q3 Uh, so this is absolutely fantastic and i think that that they were pinning the the part of the success at least on the world cup which uh, they they partially carried with the telemundo coverage And so that's all to the good. Unfortunately, it's accompanied by a widening loss. Apparently, they lost 973 million in Q4, and they only earned revenue of 660 million. That's a 2.1 billion loss on the year, and they're expecting the losses to peak next year, I think, at about 2.5 billion on Peacock. So, this is sort of a good news, bad news story, Will. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> agree. It is a good news, bad news story. It's obviously great that they're seeing growth. Although, as you said, um, Q4, they had the World Cup. They also had, they've been pulling over more, as we talked about before, they're pulling over more shows from Hulu into Peacock, which is no doubt helping them as well. So growth is growth is a good thing, but that loss is pretty amazing. Almost a billion dollars in the quarter, I think is the right way to interpret the report today. We haven't, neither of us have had a chance to actually, neither of us listened to the Comcast earnings report this morning. It's Thursday we're recording. So we want to make sure that we're, we've got that number quite right, but that's the number that's being reported is the 978 million loss for the quarter. Yeah. And, you know, peak losses in 23, but where's the path to profitability here? I don't know. Yeah. I will say, Will, that I do like the model that they entered the market with, given that they came in very late. You know, I like the freemium approach where you've got a free tier and a subscription tier. And I think that is showing benefits. And they are doing pretty darn well with the 
free tier, I was looking at Q2 data from 2022 from TiVo. And TiVo has them as the number three fast service in the US right now, but only slightly behind Tubi and the Roku channel. And I have a feeling that that will probably improve in the in the fourth quarter. So they've very quickly emerged as, a, as an important fast service. But boy, it's it's tough when you are losing that much money. And we know the focus that Wall Street is putting on profits in direct-to-consumer services these days. So uh, could be a tough year this year for Peacock uh, from uh, from Wall Street, at least. Yeah, and I think what you just said there about them having come late to market is really the operative term. Uh, we've talked about this before, but they Peacock came, their model, I agree with you, I like their model too, the freemium model, but they came to market so too, far too late yeah. um, relative to competitors. And I think, unfortunately, they really missed a window, a growth window opportunity uh, as everybody else was charging headlong into the market. And it's awfully hard to make up a lot of ground in a highly competitive market like streaming. So, you know, it seems like Comcast is pretty committed to Peacock. Um, but as you said, Wall Street is looking and, and I think they need to at some point be able to articulate what the path to profitability is. Yeah, I think so, too. And, you know, the reason they delayed because they wanted NBCU content to continue to support the pay TV model well, I tell you what, it was pretty darn clear what's what's going on with the pay TV model today because they lost 11% of their pay TV subscribers in 2022. So <laughs> that's an acceleration from 8% in 2021. So we can see what's going on there. But uh, anyway, what, I think, what caught... I, I'm just going to make one last quick point, Colin. I think you're right about what you just said. Uh, I think the other influence on them, as we've talked about in the podcast before, is that they did this deal with Disney about the valuation of Hulu and they had a big financial incentive to leave those programs on Hulu to build value in Hulu because they had a um, kind of like a collar on how the buy or sell of their stake would work. And I, I, I think my, my view is I think they got maybe a little bit distracted by thinking that it was better to build value in Hulu than it was to build value in their own service, i.e. Peacock. And um, and they I think they lost some time in that in that window. But yeah. you know, it's it's rear view mirror discussion at this point. It is what it is. It it is what it is. Although I have to say, I think you and I both were critical of them A not doing something sooner in OTT land and B not pulling back that Hulu content earlier into Peacock to help its success. I think we both nailed Comcast on both of those points, but <laughs> maybe that's enough of that self-promotion. Anyway, what, what caught your eye your eye in the news this week? Well, from the frying pan to the fry, from the frying pan to the fire, as they say, because there was news this week that uh, Diamond Sports, which is the owner of the 19 regional sports networks known as Bally's, uh, is on the brink of filing for bankruptcy. And this is not necessarily by surprise. Um, Diamond had actually written down a billion dollars of the value of uh, the RSNs just recently. And there's been a lot of speculation in the industry. But certainly a bankruptcy filing would bring it all to a head. And for those that don't recall the backstory on this, 
Um, Diamond is owned by Sinclair, and this all traces back to Sinclair buying the Fox regional sports networks from Disney, which Disney was mandated to divest as part of getting the Fox acquisition approved. So Disney put this, the uh, Fox RSNs on the market. They got almost $9 billion from Sinclair, uh, which at the time seemed to lots of folks as having, as Diamond Sinclair having overpaid for the networks. That was only a few years ago. Things have only gone from bad to worse in terms of cord cutting, as you just mentioned with the Comcast example. And they've had this gigantic debt looming over them to uh, pay off the acquisition costs. Reportedly, they plan to skip, I'm reading from Next TV right now, they plan to skip a February interest payment of $140 million on the debt incurred to acquire the RSNs. And it looks like that's what's going to precipitate the bankruptcy filing. So, you know, just to quickly talk about, well, what does all that mean? What's the, what are the consequences of that? The Diamond, with its 19 RSNs, is a, is a reasonably big player in the sports broadcasting business. They, I don't know what their obligation is to the underlying team owners and leagues, but it's it's certainly significant. And if Diamond is not able to continue making payments to the leagues and to the sports teams themselves, then it seems like that's going to have some impact on them, on the teams and their payrolls and everything at some point. Although I'm definitely into the realm of speculation, but it seems like there is some cause and effect going on there. And more broadly, I think it calls into question what the value of sports rights and RSNs really are in this day and age with streaming and linear declines and cord cutting and everything else. Uh, we just talked last week to David Gandler at Fubo TV about what role sports plays in pay TV and how they're charging an incremental $15 a month for the RSNs. And obviously there has to be demand at that, price, at that kind of price point, those surcharges for RSNs in order for the whole model to work. And that's before even talking about companies overpaying for sports rights and RSNs like Diamond did. So there's potentially a pretty significant ripple effect here from the Diamond bankruptcy, but we'll, we'll wait and see how it goes. Yeah, this is, this is, I think, a great example, Will, of the artificial environment that existed within paid television for content. Because basically, you know, you had everybody in an area was forced to pay for that uh, regional sports network, for their local regional sports network, whether they wanted that content or not. And that really has led to really inflated license fees for those local sports. Well, now that's beginning to unravel. The pay TV operators themselves are dropping the the regional sports networks. Um, There is obviously still some sort of underlying demand for these games, but not at the levels that were being were being spent or given to the regional sports network license owners um, in 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 the days of the closed pay tv ecosystem it just doesn't fly today and 
boy, I don't know where this goes. It's uh, I certainly don't know what what it means for Bali. Um, but it, it obviously, as you point out, it has big implications for Fubo TV, which has just in, announced increases in prices, as you said, for for, for the RSNs. Uh, and by the way, folks, if you didn't listen to it last week, you should definitely listen to that interview with David Gandler. It was a great interview. He had lots to say, and uh, he did. We did talk about the RSNs in that discussion. So if you missed that, make sure you catch it. But uh, this is this is a classic example of how this pay TV ecosystem, the traditional pay TV ecosystem, is really now starting to unravel and uh, having ripple effects throughout the industry including as you say and I, I i totally believe you with the teams and the players themselves so <laughs> it's uh, going to be fascinating to see how this all works out yeah and just i want to add a couple thoughts colin to what you said the idea of the quote-unquote sports tax is an old one you know we've talked about that for over 10 years yeah yeah and it's widely understood in the industry what, that there's a huge quote-unquote sports tax on non-sports viewers, whether it's through RSNs being included in basic cable bills or other sports-oriented networks that are watched only by a you know, relative minority of viewers. And we'll talk about ESPN here in a moment. But there's basically been this kind of tentative equilibrium in the market where lots of people were paying lots and lots of money for stuff that they just weren't watching and that money, the sports tax revenues, were in effect getting cycled back to fund these massive player contracts, massive valuations of teams, massive net worth increases by teams' owners, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's rippled through this entire sports uh, ecosystem. And it was a relatively delicate equilibrium that has been upended by the prevalence of sports, the fragmentation, um, the prevalence of, of streaming, of social media, of fragmentation of viewers' attention to lots of other uh, outlets, and to, you know, what the viability of, of the model, the historic model, is here. So, and one other thing to mention, of course, and we'll get into this in the ESPN discussion in a second, is that we now have these big tech companies, Apple, Amazon, and Google, coming in, scooping up sports rights, continuing to raise the bar on the legacy RSNs and sports networks like ESPN, which we'll talk about in a minute. And those guys can afford to lose all kinds of money because they're doing it to support other parts of their business. So that equilibrium that we had is, I think, arguably under attack from lots of different standpoints right now. Yeah, and and it's really hard to see where it's where the new equilibrium point is going to be. Well, it's just really difficult. No idea. Well, good segue into ESPN, Colin. You, which you wrote about this week, and which underscores the, you know, the upending that we're seeing throughout the industry. I I, I did write about ESPN, and this is this is great. I this came about because every quarter I do a sort of summary of where the television market is in the U.S. So a regular contributor, a regular commenter on my site, a guy called Sam, he, he actually commented and ma- made the comment that he tends to follow the number of ESPN households as a, as a better proxy of where the pay television market is. And uh, he, I think he's, it was a very good comment. So that anyway, that forced me out to sort of take a look at this myself. 
And it really is a fascinating picture that is painted, Will. The, basically, you know, we spend a lot of time obsessing with core cutting. And we talked about it today with Comcast, of course. And really looking at ESPN, you get a quite a little, you get a different picture of things. So if you look just at the traditional pay TV market, the number of subscribers fell by 6.6 million between Q3 2021 and Q3 22 versus 5.6 million in the same previous period. So it's really accelerating. And the number of pay TV households since 2013 has decreased from you know, 100 million to 67 million US homes. That's the number of cable, satellite and telco TV homes. Well, if you look at what happened to ESPN over that period, certainly in the beginning years, ESPN's decline pretty much tracked the decline in traditional pay TV. So in 2013, they had like 99 million homes. And as I say, through about 2016, the the decline in ESPN tracked the decline in traditional pay TV. But after that, it starts to slow and it has slowed. It's continuing to decline. But rather than if you look at traditional pay TV, which has lost 33 million homes since 2013, ESPN has only lost 25 million. And get this, there are now more ESPN homes than there are pay TV homes. So traditional you, you prob- pay TV homes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So 67 million pay TV, traditional pay TV versus 74 million ESPN homes. Now, our smart audience already knows where the difference is. The difference is the virtual MVPDs. And the reason 2016 is a significant date is because Dish Network launched the first VMVPDs, Sling TV, back in 2015. And, you know, uh, other people entered the market in 2016 and 2017. DirecTV Now, for example, was a, was a big entrant at that time. And the market has really grown pretty significantly since then. And that's really the big difference because Sling TV... When it launched, it had ESPN and ESPN2. It was by far the cheapest way that you could get ESPN at the time without subscribing to traditional pay TV. You just had to pay 20 bucks. You got this basket of 21 channels and it included ESPN and ESPN2. And today, four of the six major VMVPDs, Fubo, YouTube TV, Hulu Live, and DirecTV Stream all include ESPN in their base package. Sling TV, it's a choice. You can pick one of two packages. One has it, one doesn't have it. Uh, and Philo doesn't, doesn't offer it at all because it doesn't do sports and it doesn't do news. So that's really the difference here that sort of made, made things up. Uh, and it's actually doubly good because the data that I see, the comments I see, seems to suggest that actually Disney gets more from the virtual MVPDs than it does from the traditional pay TV operators for ESPN and, and all of those channels. So, so that was pretty interesting. And I actually, I ended up convincing myself when I looked at ESPN Plus that really the number of ESPN households hasn't changed at all, at least the number of people that are subscribing or paying for ESPN hasn't changed at all because Disney says that ESPN Plus has has nearly 23 million subscribers these days. So you add all of that up and 
it's pretty much the same as it was back in 2013. But the picture is really different. And this is when, you know, where we were talking about value inside of the pay TV ecosystem and outside ESPN and the bundle of ESPN channels typically goes for, I guess, about 10 bucks these days, 10 bucks a sub. Well, ESPN Plus is not getting anything like that. It started off at $4.99 a month. They raised it to $5.99 a month, and then they raised it again to $6.99 a month. But you know what? The ARPU for ESPN Plus has been stuck at about at or below $5 the entire period. Uh, and this is because most people are buying, are getting ESPN Plus now through the, the Disney bundle. So there is a big price increase, Will. $9.99 a month, it's just gone up to. So they should see a bump in ARPU now. But it's still, I think, going to be earning way less than they were earning for the ESPN bundle of channels inside of pay TV. So anyway, that's I'm going to catch my breath here and let you comment. Right. Well, the issue, of course, what you're pointing out with the ARPU levels of ESPN, ESPN Plus, is that ESPN, the network that's carried, has, as you said, around has over 70 million, 74 million, 75 million households that it's being paid for which is far in excess of what ESPN Plus has. And so, and ESPN Plus doesn't have the marquee sports included in it that ESPN does. So in order for ESPN to afford to pay for the rights to those sports that are in ESPN, not ESPN Plus, it would have to dramatically raise the price of ESPN Plus. I mean, there have been reports about that for ages that ESPN a la carte could be potentially like, I've read $30, $35, $40 yeah, me a too, month. Me too. So then the question is, well, what's the true demand for ESPN programming? Not the quote, artificial demand for ESPN because it's automatically bundled within pay TV packages when in reality there's probably an 80-20 rule on ESPN viewership, just like there's an 80-20 rule on most everything in life. So in other words, only probably around 20% of ESPN households are avid ESPN viewers. There are certainly more casual viewers that need to be added to that number, but there's a huge percentage of people who never watch a single moment of ESPN within a month and yet there's, as you said before, you know, at least 10 to $15 or more per month embedded in their pay TV bill that they don't even think about, they don't recognize, et cetera, et cetera. They just keep paying it until they cut the cord, of course. So it's, it's, it's certainly apples to oranges to compare you know, ESPN, quality of ESPN, uh, potential for ESPN versus ESPN+. Plus. But one point I just wanted to mention also, Colin, is that when I take a step back and look at the position that ESPN finds itself in. And I think your numbers really illustrate what the market dynamics are right now. It, it, it kind of comes into focus for me, the big decision that Bob Iger, the returning CEO of Disney has in front of him, which is that on the one hand, ESPN, as you aptly pointed out, is being, its number of subscribers is being squeezed by the, um, acceleration of cord cutting. So on the one hand, its sub numbers are being squeezed. On the other hand, it's going to get squeezed by the streaming companies, the tech companies, Apple, Amazon, and Google, most 
prominently for the rights, for the sports rights. And when you have a business that on the one hand is squeezed in terms of its customer base, size of its customer base, and is being squeezed by escalating costs, that's not a recipe for long-term success. And so that's why when I think about you know, the considerable laundry list of decisions that Bob Iger has to make, what to do with ESPN seems like it's pretty darn near the top of what, of what he needs to think about, what the group, what the executive team there at uh, Disney needs to think about. Is this a long-term successful uh, business for them, or do they need to think about exiting, which is almost you know, something that would have been unthinkable even like a year or so, two years ago. But I think that's, I, I personally, I think that that is a decision that's on the table should be on the table, rather. I do too, and I, I've thought a lot about the ESPN as part of the pay TV bundle is a very different animal to the ESPN Plus direct-to-consumer service. I will say that the some of the, some of those premium rights that it has are now being transferred over to some. ESPN Plus, some, and that, that will be a gradual process that would happen over a number of years. But, but the... If you think about ESPN, it, it sort of grew up as the place where people went to get the you know to catch up on 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 what's been going on in games and to hear sports talk. There are plenty of places you can get that these days. Well, and get, to watch live games, and yeah, to watch yeah, live games. Uh, exactly. Don't forget that. That's the. I mean, I agree with you. The sports-oriented shows, around the horn, etc., are great. But you know, the bread and butter of ESPN are the games themselves. That's that's exactly right, and and so I, I'm just not sure that the the pay TV, the traditional pay TV ESPN model, is needed anymore. And one of the things that Iger did when when they started ESPN Plus was he said that he wanted ESPN Plus to be the place people go when they want to watch sports online. It's not working out that way. The fragmentation of the rights, there's no there's no aggregation of all the rights in one place through ESPN Plus. I mean ESPN Plus just lost MLS. It's it's gone to Apple Apple TV. So, you know, this this idea that you could create one place that everybody would come, if he was able to execute on that, yeah, ESPN Plus would be incredibly valuable. But he, he you know, this is not happening these days. It's just not going to happen. The other thing is that they are trying to pull the same trick as with the pay TV bundle, right? Because I mentioned that most people who are getting ESPN Plus these days are getting it through the Disney bundle. Um, and, you know, the Disney bundle makes sense if you just want Disney and Disney Plus and, and Hulu. It makes sense to get the Disney Plus bundle and get the ESPN Plus part of that as well just sort of folded in but even that dynamic is changing well because you can now get the duo bundle which is just hulu and disney plus and i suspect that they've done that because they know that they can't keep espn plus at bargain basin prices that they have to start pushing the price up to cover the costs of the sports and so in that circumstance I, I just, I don't know. I, it's not the same model as pay TV. How the dynamics of that works in the market is very, very different. I mean, for me, maybe there's some 
maybe I want to watch the FA Cup on ESPN Plus and that's all. Or maybe I'll just cancel the bundle and go go from the triple bundle to the duo bundle out of out of season. I I don't know. It's a pretty different market. Well, the ultimate truth here, I think, Colin, that we would emphatically agree on, and I think lots of our listeners probably would as well, is that there will never, ever be another model like the pay TV model. No, that was no. that was a once in a generation or multi-generation business model to emerge. And everybody, and most prominently, the sports ecosystem, teams, owners, players, managers, networks, et cetera, benefited enormously from the pay TV business model. And it is not going to happen again. The internet, as it has done with every other industry, it has encountered, it rolls over them. There is no yeah. fighting the internet, technology, streaming, broadband access, the disruption. There's no fighting it. It's only been a matter of time, and we're seeing that unfold now. Yeah. And the implications, as we talked about before, with now the Diamond Sports. And, and I should also mention that David Zaslav, the head of Warner Brothers Discovery, has been also very public about the relationship that TNT has with the NBA and discussing how they could live without, TNT could live without the NBA when that deal comes up for renewal. So that could be yet another example of how some of the value of sports rights gets diminished. So a lot of moving pieces here. There are. And uh, yes, this I got a feeling that this is a subject that we're going to be returning to a lot more in 2023, Will. I think so. And I think that's all we have time for this week. So great chatting as always. Lots of stuff to cover, Colin. You bet. And uh, thanks everybody for listening in on this week's Inside the Stream. See you all again next week. Inside the Stream is a production of InScreen Media and Video News. All rights reserved.